about you, but whenever I come to the end of a book where we've been spending a good deal of time, there's a little bit of sadness in it, in the sense that I just really fall in love with whatever book that I'm preaching on at the time. And uh, it's kind of hard to see it come to an end, because I think it's been a very, very rich study, and I hope that's been true for you. I'd like to read for us, starting at verse 10 to the end of the chapter. Peter says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. There are two extremes that people can fall into when it comes to the second coming of Jesus Christ. On the one side, there are, think, there are people who think it will never happen. They give no thought to it at all. They don't, they don't think Jesus is going to come back. They don't think that there's going to be a final judgment where we will stand before him. And so it makes no difference at all in their life. And on the other side, there are those who are so preoccupied with trying to figure out the signs and the times and the dates that they miss the point of why he is coming. They miss the way that we ought to live in light of that day. Some have even gone so far or so extreme that they have at times in history uh, quit their jobs, they've stored up supplies or ammunition and headed for the hills, thinking that it was going to happen that soon. Now don't misunderstand me. I am all for studying biblical prophecy, but I can say this, that no one had it 100% right the first time Jesus came, and no one's going to have it all figured out the second time that he comes either. There's just too many variables and too much that we don't know as we read this. It's a little bit like trying to fill out your NCAA bracket for March Madness and wanting to get 100% correct. It's just not going to happen. And we study the scriptures to understand why Jesus is coming and what does that mean for us and how does that affect our life. Peter gives us a warning in this chapter about both dangers. He tells us on the one hand, don't listen to the scoffers who say it will never happen. Jesus Christ will come again, and the world will not continue as it is forever. But on the other side, don't miss the point of why he is coming. 
Watch and be ready. Live in a way that is pleasing to God. When theologians talk about the coming of Christ, there is a word that they use called eschatology. It's the study of last things. And one of the things that you will see in Scripture is that every time the Bible talks about these last things or the return of Christ, there is always an ethical appeal. That it is always directed toward living in a way that is pleasing to God when he comes. The knowledge of his coming is meant to give us hope and meant to change the way we live. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. What does Peter say about that? Well, there are four points I want to bring out in this text. Number one, he calls us to be holy. To be holy, and we see that in verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. What's interesting is that in Greek, the words for holy and godly there are both plural. It's as though Peter is saying to us, you know, there are all kinds of holinesses and all kinds of godlinesses that you could do. It's kind of a funny way of saying that. I mean, it's the kind of thing you might hear a young child say, where they plural things that aren't usually plural. And what he is stressing there is that there are many different things that we can be doing in our life right now to prepare for his coming. Holiness has to do with being separate from sin, dedicated or set apart to God. And godliness has to do with a practical piety. It's kind of a practical holiness. It's putting God's word into practice in our life and in our worship. And so godliness shows up in the way that we live every single day. It's not just Sunday, but it's all through the week. Godliness is to show up in the way that we go about our work, the way we live our lives in our homes, in our marriage, when we go to school, how we treat other people, how we use our finances and our time. All of those are to be a reflection that God has done a work in our life, and so we want to live in a way that is godly, that's pleasing to Him. When men reject his coming and they don't think that Jesus is going to come back and they don't think there's going to be a final judgment or accountability, it leads to things like this. It leads to hedonism. Philosophy that says we should eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're going to die. So we're just going to live for personal pleasure in this world. Or it leads to greed. People who think that, you know, I'm going to grab all I can get. If I have only this short time, I'm going to grab everything that I can get and amass all this money or wealth or whatever it is I like. And they buy into what the Scripture describes as the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, which God says are passing away. Those things will not last. They are not pleasing to God. They are part of this world system. And finally, for those who deny Jesus' coming, it can ultimately lead to despair. And we see that in the artists. We see that in philosophers. We see that in musicians or people who really think deeply about life, that if this is all there is, then what's the point? What's the point? What is the meaning of life? And when you think deeply about that and you do not know Jesus Christ, it leads to despair. But for the believer, everything is different. 
there are some very practical applications that come out of this text. In this second half of the chapter, Peter's going to emphasize how we are to live holy lives, how we are to worship God, how we're to serve Him and use our gifts and speed His coming even by the way that we live and the way that we pray. When I see those things, if you change the order just a bit, you see the words worship, grow, serve. Words that we emphasize in our church, that we believe that every believer is called to those three things. To worship God, that's why we gather corporately like this. It's to grow in our faith, that's why we want to get into God's Word and study it, and we want to serve. We want to use our gifts in a way that serves and honors God and blesses others. I love how practical Peter is and how matter-of-fact he is in talking about the return of Christ. He's not saying, you know, run for the hills. There's no panic here. There's no kind of anxious moments. It's really keep doing what God has called you to do until Jesus Christ comes. Keep going about your lives. Keep living your lives for the glory of God. Do what he's called you to do and stay faithful. In verse 14, he tells us that we are to make every effort to be found spotless blameless and at peace in him. Think about those words. Those are the same words that he used to describe Jesus in that passage I read for communion. Jesus was that Lamb of God who was slain for us, who was spotless, who was without blemish, without blame. And we are to be like that. What Peter is saying here is we are to live in a way that is Christ-like. We are to become more and more like him as he changes us by his Holy Spirit. Let others see Jesus Christ in you. Work at that. Make every effort to be found in a way that is pleasing to him when he returns. You know, when I think about that, I think about how a bride gets ready for a wedding. In my years of ministry, I've been a part of a lot of weddings And I have never met a bride who did not want to look her best on her wedding day. You know, I mean, it's just, it's what you want to do as a bride, you know. And they they take great care to find the dress that's going to be the dress that they like. They want to have their hair done. They want their makeup done. They want to look their best on their wedding day. Not just for the pictures, you know, that's important too in a sense. But they are looking their best because they want to please the one that they are marrying. And the scripture says we should have that same attitude concerning the coming of Christ, that that day is going to come when we are going to see Jesus face to face. We're going to see this one who loved us and who died for us. And the Apostle John says that everyone who has this hope in Christ purifies himself just as he is pure. That if that is our hope, and it is, then we make it our aim to live in a way that is pleasing to him. We're thinking about that day, and we're getting ready for it. Secondly, Peter says, be hopeful. We see that in verses 12 to 14. Three times in these verses, he will say, we are looking forward to Jesus coming. We're looking forward to the day of God. We're going to speed its coming. We can do that by our prayers, kingdom prayers, like thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Prayers for the advancement of the gospel. We do it by living a holy life. We do it by fervent evangelism. We can speed his coming. 
when we cooperate with God and what He is doing around the world. But that day is going to come that will bring about the destruction of this present universe. But it will also bring in a new heaven and a new earth. The home of righteousness, Peter says. A new heaven and a new earth that are free from sin and all of its effects. Now when you study this passage, you'll find that commentators are divided over what this destruction by fire means. Is it total destruction of this present universe and a replacement with something new? A new heaven, new earth? I mean, that's, that's a pretty amazing thing to try to get your mind around. The destruction of the universe and the creation of something entirely new. Or is this fire, this destruction by fire, a symbol of purification and restoration or renewal? And the reason commentators wrestle with it is because depending upon where you're reading in the New Testament or who you're listening to, it sounds like both are going on. I mean, Peter makes it sound like this present universe is destroyed and replaced by a new one. But John in Revelation and Paul in Romans make it sound like it's a restoration, like this present creation is groaning under the effects of sin, longing for the day when the sons of God will be revealed and the effects of change and the effects of sin are changed and God makes all things new. You know what I think is going on here? I think it's an example where the writers of Scripture are wrestling with how to describe things that are indescribable. I mean, how do you put this into words, what God is saying here? When you think about this change with a new heaven and a new earth, free from sin and all of its effects in our world, it stretches our imagination. It's an amazing thing to think about. You know, let me give you an example of that in history of perhaps how hard it is for us to maybe get our mind around all of it. All of you know the name Marco Polo. He lived in the 13th century and he was known for his exploration. In fact, to this day, some still debate whether or not what he told in his book about the travels of Marco Polo, did it really happen or did he make that up? Was there truth there? Was it fiction? Is it a combination of both? People wrestled with it back then and today. And Marco Polo claimed that he traveled with his father and his uncle to China. He went through Central Asia. He went through the rugged mountains of Afghanistan. He went through the wastelands of Persia, crossed the Gobi Desert, and ended up there in the kingdom of the most powerful ruler on planet Earth at that time, the Kublai Khan. Mark, Marco Polo, or Mark as we would call him, saw cities that made European capitals look like roadside villages. The Khan's palace dwarfed the largest castles and cathedrals in Europe. It was so massive that its banquet room alone could seat 6,000 diners at one time, each eating on a plate of pure gold. Marco Polo saw the world's first paper money. He marveled at the explosive power of gunpowder. It would be the 18th century before Europe would manufacture as much steel as China was producing in the year 1267. And he became the first Italian to taste that Chinese culinary invention, pasta. 
Now there is some debate about that. The Italians want to say the Romans invented pasta, but there's pretty good proof that the Chinese were eating noodles 4,000 years before that. It's amazing. So Marco Polo, he works and serves in this kingdom of Kublai Khan for many, many years, about 17 years he's there before he makes his way back. And when he comes back, all of these things get collected, put into a book. But the people that he returns to in Venice do not believe him. They don't believe him. They think that these are just inventions, that this is a mythical place called China. In fact, his book became known by another title, A Million Lies. A Million Lies. His family, his friends, his priest even begged him to recant of his tales of China. But as he was on his deathbed, he said, I have not even told you the half of what I saw. It was only later in history, as Europeans began to travel more widely, that they realized that there was substance to what he had talked about. You know, when we look at the scriptures, we see these accounts of Paul, who said, I was caught up to the third heaven, and I saw things that a man was not permitted to speak. And you hear John talk about the revelation, the vision that he had of heaven, of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem coming down from God. And he shares these things that are so wonderful and amazing that it was hard for them to put into words. Heaven is going to be more joyful, more glorious, more beautiful than you and I could ever imagine. What are we looking forward to? What is it that Peter is pointing us to in that day? Well, on that day, we will see Jesus face to face. We will see family and friends who have gone before us in Christ we will see that new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem. And we will see God in all of his glory. What an amazing day that is going to be. Peter says, be ready for it. Be ready for that day. Thirdly, he tells us to be alert in verses 15 to 17. He says, be on your guard in verse 17 that you will not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position in Christ. Be on your guard. This is the very reason that Peter wrote this letter. He wrote to warn them about false teachers. He wrote to instruct us about the day of the Lord. And he calls us over and over again to hold to the Scriptures. Remember, remember what the prophets wrote. Remember what the apostles said. Remember what Jesus said about that day. And hold to it and let that shape your life. Remember that our Lord's patience means salvation for you and for others. I mean, think about that. If our Lord had returned 100 years ago, none of us in this room would ever experience the glories of heaven. Because we would never have been born. Jesus, because of his mercy, his patience and waiting, has given us an opportunity to come into the kingdom, and one day we will experience the glories of heaven. And God continues to wait until that day comes when the full number of the Gentiles have come in, when the full number of the Jews have come in, and only God knows when that day will be, and then Jesus Christ will return. And Peter affirms here, again, talking about Paul's writing on these things, that Paul's writing are Scripture. You can trust it. You can believe it. 
He acknowledges that there are times, there are places where we may have a hard time understanding some of it. And he talks about how ungodly men distort and twist the Scripture to suit their own needs. Listen to what Paul has written. Listen to what Peter has said. Hold to the Scriptures. You know, there's an old saying that goes like this. It says, if you give a man bread, he will eat for a day. But if you teach him to plant, he'll eat for a lifetime. We use that a lot in reference to studying the Scripture. One of the reasons I like to preach through books of Scripture and explaining, going verse by verse, going through the text like I do, is because I want to model how we should study the Scripture. That we read it in context, we see how it fits together, we cover all of Scripture, we go through passages that are ones that we love and passages that are difficult or hard to preach, but we need to hear them. And I want you, when you come on Sunday morning, I pray that you will leave this place feeling spiritually fed. But even more than that, I pray that you are learning how to feed yourselves on God's Word. To hear it, to read it, to study it, to meditate on it, to memorize it, to put it into practice in your life. And then you will see from the way that we work through the text how important it is that we have good observation of what it says and we understand what it means and we apply that to our life. One of the giants of the modern evangelical movement was a man named Frank Gabeline. He was known particularly for his editing work, and he was the chief editor for the Expositor's Bible Commentary, just a great Bible commentary series that's been out there for a number of years. And those who knew Frank Gabelin said that he was an authentic, a deeply religious man. You could see the love of Christ in him. You could see his love for God and his love for people. You could detect in him a person in whom the mind of Christ was well-developed. A friend said about him, I remember the day when he was asked by an interviewer what had been the most formative influence on his life. And he said, without a doubt, it has been the daily reading of the King James Version of the Bible. For him, that was the standard at that time to read through the Word of God in the King James Version, and he did that every day. Prolonged immersion in the Word of God changes us. The Word of God has power to renew our minds and to change our behavior as no other source can do. That's why we need to be in it. The Word of God was written to change our life by bringing us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we allow Him to work in us and the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to understand the Scripture, it changes us. And it is up to us then to use it well. To use the Word well. And finally, Peter encourages us to be growing. To be growing. I wanted to say keep growing here, but I was on a roll with the word be, and so it's be growing. And we'll uh, uh, take it from there. But if you are looking for a summary verse for Peter's second letter, verse 18 would be it. That we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Keep growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. It is by grace that we are saved. It's by grace that we grow. 
It's only because of His work in our life, only because of His unfailing love and His mercy and His forgiveness that we are here. It's because of what He did that we have a relationship with Christ. And God loves you and me. And we don't need to do anything to earn or merit His favor in that way. We could never do that. We could not earn our salvation. But there is something we can do in response to His grace. We can grow in His Word. We can grow in our knowledge of Him. We can use our gifts to serve Him. We can do those good works that God prepared for us in advance to do. There is a work that we are to do in response to grace. It is to be obedient and faithful to the Word of God in our life and to share that gospel with those who don't know Christ. And we're to do that every single day until the day that he either calls us home or our Lord returns. I like that. Grace and knowledge. I think of the words grace and truth. Grace and truth. Both are essential in the Christian life. Both are necessary for a healthy church. Both are found in Jesus Christ who came from the Father full of grace and truth. We want to be a church. We want to be Christians who demonstrate both in our life. That there is love, there's mercy, there's forgiveness, there are all those things that are part of grace. But then also we speak the truth. We don't change the standards of God's Word. We say what He said, no more, no less. We preach the truth. We preach the Gospel. We call people to repent of their sins. We call people to put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And we do that unashamedly because there's salvation in no one else. There's no other place to turn for hope or holiness. There's no other place to to turn, to look to, to find meaning and purpose in life. It is in Jesus Christ. And Peter ends his letter by saying something very, very profound. He says to him, Be glory both now and forever. Amen. Now think about that. For a Jew who grew up learning the words of Isaiah 42.8, Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another. Every Jew growing up learned that all glory belongs to God, not to anyone else. And what Peter is saying in this text is a remarkable doxology. It is high Christology. It is a clear declaration that Jesus Christ is God and to Him belongs the glory both now and forever. Amen. We put our trust in Him. We put our hope in Jesus. And Jesus does not fail. So what are we to do while we are waiting for Christ's return? Waiting is not passive. Waiting is not being inactive. We are called to be holy, to live in a way that is pleasing to God. We're called to be hopeful, to look forward to that day that is coming and to be ready for it. We're called to be alert. Don't be taken in by false teaching, but hold to the Scriptures and build your life upon the Word of God. And we are to be growing in grace and truth until the day He returns or calls us home. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a great hope we have. And how powerful these words are that describe all that you have given to us and all that you have prepared for us in the future. 
Help us to live as your children in light of that day, ready for your coming, busy about our Father's business, sharing the good, note, the good news with those who do not know you. We ask that all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now today again on a communion Sunday, we don't have a final song, and so I'm going to ask you to stand for our benediction as we close. This is from Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. And now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. I feel the waves crashing on my feet It's like I know